The public has had a long-held fascination with detectives. Detectives see a side of life the average person is never exposed to. I spent 34 years as a cop. For 25 of those years, I was catching killers. That's what I did for a living. I was a homicide detective. I'm no longer just interviewing bad guys. Instead, I'm taking the public into the world in which I operated. The guests I talk to each week on the I Catch Killers podcast have amazing stories from all sides of the law. The interviews are raw and honest, just like the world they inhabited. No one who steps into the world of crime comes out unchanged. Join me now while I take you into this world. This episode of I Catch Killers contains conversations that some listeners may find confronting or triggering. Discretion is advised. Welcome to another episode of I Catch Killers. I think most people would have heard of the sinking of the Greenpeace flagship Rainbow Warrior in Auckland Harbour in 1985. If you haven't, I'll refresh your memory. The sinking of the boat, codenamed Operation Santa Q, was a state-sanctioned bombing by the action branch of the French Foreign Intelligence Service, known as DGSE. It was carried out on the 10th of July 1985, when it was in the port of Auckland. The ship was on the way to protest against a planned French nuclear test at Muraroa Atoll. A photographer, Fernando Piera, drowned when the ship was sunk. France initially denied responsibility, but two French agents were captured by New Zealand police in charge of arson, conspiracy to commit arson, willful damage and murder. Today, we are very fortunate to have on Eye Catch Killers one of the detectives who was responsible for tracking down the persons who committed this act of terrorism. When you join the police and become a detective, you're always looking to be assigned to a big case. Well, it doesn't get much bigger than state-sanctioned international spies, bombings and murder. Today we're going to hear from a former New Zealand police officer, Philip Marshall, who has an amazing story to tell about the case and his experiences as a New Zealand cop. Philip Marshall, welcome to I Catch Killers. Thanks, Gary. I, you are the uh, first New Zealand cop uh, that we've had on I Catch Killers, so you've got a bit of responsibility here, Phil. This is the first time uh, listeners get to assess what the uh, New Zealand cops are like, but uh, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. No problem. Now, we uh, we first met at a conference, and uh, it's funny, it, it conferences amazing how uh, two ex-cops can uh, identify each other. It's like there's a secret handshake, and we got to uh, got to talking, and uh, I was telling you a little bit about my career, and uh, you were telling me a bit about your career, and then you uh, you trumped me with the fact that you worked on the uh, sinking of the Rainbow Warrior, and uh, I was most impressed, so at that time... My little mind clicked over and thought, I've got to get you on as a guest of uh, I Catch Killers. So that's how it's come to be. So um, how did you get on the case? Um, selected. I, I lived um, one and a half hours south of Auckland, so I was a, a member of the Hamilton uh, Criminal Investigation Branch. Yeah. And um, I'd previously worked in Auckland and – they were looking for, uh, I guess, their A team. And yeah. I got a phone call at night to say, I want you in Auckland tomorrow morning, please. And so I was on my way. And when you talk about wanting to get onto an inquiry like that, I hadn't thought about it as such. But a good, a good friend of mine who is yeah. a detective sergeant by the name of Peter Williams, he rang me the next day and said, you have to get me on that inquiry. This is the inquiry of a lifetime. I, well, I, I, I would say it that way too. Yeah. 
and the interesting thing is I did manage to get him on the inquiry um, at the first briefing that I attended in Auckland. Um, Alan Galbraith, who was running the inquiry, said, did we know of any police who spoke French? Um, that would be handy. Yeah. So I put up my hand and said, uh, Detective Sergeant Williams. And so they got him onto the inquiry. Now, Peter used to talk with a funny French accent and used to carry on. But his and, and his brother was married to a French girl. But putting all that aside, he couldn't speak French. But I managed to get him on the inquiry. <laughs> okay. All right. I like, I like the way you manoeuvre that. Yes, we oui, oui, I can speak French. So that, that got him a start. Yeah. And he okay. was soon exposed within a couple of days, actually. But anyway. <laughs> it's hard to cover up when you can't speak a language. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's uh, you'd been in the cops for 17 years at that stage? I think it's 1985. Yeah. I, right? I, look, yep. I joined as a cadet aged 17 in 1970. And New Zealand used to run a, a very good uh, training for young policemen, and I was I was in the police college for twenty months uh, before I graduated, and I was transferred to Auckland. And within a short period of time, I was a trainee detective. I was also a member of the Armed Defender Squad, which is the equivalent right. of SWAT, or I think you call them a tactical response group here. Tact. We've got a few different jurisdictions, tactical operations group uh, or unit, yep. and uh, different uh, in different states they're called different things. But I understand what you're saying: high risk uh, jobs and arrest of high risk offenders. Yeah, and um, dealing with firearms, armed response, called out any time of the day or night. Yeah, and um, I grew up on a farm in New Zealand, and so I was used to firearms, and once they saw how good I was, they trained me as a sniper. So that was my sort of sideline that right. I did as well. So they, they let you uh, you uh, continue on with that concurrently and do your plain clothes detectives work as well? Yeah. When you, when you were required, when there was, let's call it a call out at mm. any time of the day or night, um, then you get a phone call, you respond, and you get into your gear, and off you go. That's uh, we had the same uh, the same situation here, and uh, it was probably some of my favourite times of uh, in the policing that uh, you're on call for the uh, tactical team. So I was in the state protection support unit supporting the TOU, and so the phone would ring, yeah, in the early hours of the morning, and I'd be thinking, no, oh, if this is a homicide, I'm going to be up for the next forty eight hours. Or if it was a tactical job, you could go go there and uh, there could be a siege or a high risk uh, uh, high risk uh, arrest of an armed offender, and you could walk away without doing the paperwork if you're the tactical. That's so, right. which what was your learning? Did you have that same type of experience? Absolutely. And the thing I remember most is lying out on the ground two o'clock in the morning, and there's a frost coming down, and you'd be absolutely frozen. Yes. <laughs> you, and you might be there for hours. You're bringing back memories. I, I had water bottles freeze on top of me, like going yeah. to check your water bottle and it had frozen. And it was something about just before the sun came up seemed to be at its coldest, and that's when invariably you found yourself lying in the bush or doing something. That's right. Yeah. And you are right about just before daylight being the coldest time. Yeah. 
I would figure New Zealand, you guys probably took it to another level, but uh, I got to the point where you got this firearm and your fingers are so numb, <laughs> you, you had to constantly just keep moving your fingers or you wouldn't have been able to use the firearm. But uh, yeah, yeah, probably another <laughs> level in New Zealand. But it's an interesting uh, interesting part of policing, tactical policing, isn't it? It's, uh, it is. Um, I found it exciting, to be quite honest. Yeah. Because um, you're putting yourself out there and one thing New Zealand does well is uh, using dogs. Yeah. Our dog squads were excellent. They were always a front line for us. Sending the, sending the dogs in. That's right. First up, yeah. Yeah. We, uh, and it's probably progressed a lot since uh, I was last doing tactical policing, but getting into the remote control robots and uh, sending them in first, but they're, they're always a bit clunky. I remember one siege yeah. and... Uh, we put it in there, then I had to crawl a couple of hundred metres to retrieve it because its tyre had fallen off. All the tracks had fallen <laughs> off. So, yeah. But uh, you always felt safe when you sent a dog in. Like uh, They're very good in the tactical sense, aren't they? Yeah, and the other thing we'd do a bit of is if someone was holed up in a house and they didn't want to come out, is we'd fire tear gas in there. Yeah. Um, the danger with that is we might set the house on fire. Yeah. That was one risk. Yeah. So the uh, how long did you uh, did you stay tactical for? You had to qualify or requalify each year, and I would imagine. Yeah, <clears throat> we used to train a lot with the military. Yeah. Um, you know, abseiling out of an Iroquois and doing all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, landing in the bush. But I did that for thirteen years. Yeah. 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 It's uh, it's something that uh, you, it's hard to let go when you've experienced it, but there comes mm. a time where you think, okay, well, I've got to concentrate on something else, or you, you're going to break down sooner or later if you keep, uh, yeah, running around with all this heavy equipment on. Yeah. Um. So, in uh, what drew you to? Uh, so, I would imagine uh, in New Zealand police that you have to serve some time in uniform before you go across to uh, plain clothes work or detective work. Was that the case? Yes, I did two years and uniform branch. Yep. How'd you find on that? Incident patrol. Yep. Um, I, look, I was a youngster, you know, and uh, in the Auckland police, they had the barracks, police barracks right next door to the police station. Yeah. So I lived there, you know, young guy in Auckland. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a great time. Good fun. And, and you said you came from the bush or you grew up on a farm? Yeah, I grew up on a farm down in the middle of the North Island. Okay, uh, it's called King Country. So going to a place like Auckland and uh, living, yeah, there on your own or not on your own with a, a lot of other lunatics, I would imagine that would have been an eye opener for you. Oh yeah, and I was a true country boy. Yeah, yeah. And there, there's something about the country, uh, country guys when they come into the uh, the big smoke. But did it open your eyes up to things? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, I went on to, when, when I first was a detective constable in the uh, CIB, they put me on vice squad. Yeah. Now, we used to do um, strip clubs, massage parlours, brothels. That's probably one and the same. Um, bookies. And it was a whole new world to me because I, I, I didn't know about a lot of these things. Yeah. Um, and so because I was the young guy on the squad, they asked me to do some undercover work and go in and get a massage and see what happened. Yeah. 
Well, we won't. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll let it get to a certain point, Phil. Then we're going to cut you off. I don't want to go, <laughs> but uh, I can under understand or not understand. I know. I, I did it a couple of times, and yeah. I said to them, "Hey guys, I don't want to do this." Yeah. Um, yeah, it, sa- it sounds like fun, and I, I'm sure there's people listening going, "What a great job!" But uh, no, yeah. it's. Uh, it, no. It's not really uh, most people's cup of tea doing stuff like that, mm, and going right. going in undercover and all that. It's it's I don't know. I've done a very little bit of it where you you're doing some covert yep. covert operations, but uh, yeah, it's a difficult uh, world. Well, I did it with bookies, and then um, I did an undercover course. Yeah, as an undercover operator, as opposed to. Being the guy undercover, so yeah. I managed guys who were who were undercover, yeah. which was an interesting experience. Um, I did that for I don't know a couple of years. It's it's interesting work, um, and we were working in the vice area. Yep, you know we we had some fairly strong rules around it. You know, don't shag the girls. Yeah, um, that sort of thing. Because well, you, you know you, they'd end up giving evidence in court. You know, that, that's so. right. Your credibility's gone down if you're yeah, uh, right. you're not you're only uh, providing part part of the information that uh, what what occurred. But that uh, that certainly would have been a eye opener. So how old were you where you were doing this type of work? Well, twenty one, twenty two. Okay. And you were happy with your career decision. You're thinking every this can't get any better as a, a job. Every day's new. Even today, I think. The police experience for giving me the skill set that's given me to cope with everything that you have to deal with in life. Yeah. Whether it's typing, you know, uh, we were trained 10 finger typing. Yeah. We did that for 20 months. So even today, you know, I've typed my whole life and uh, I'm a touch typist. So it's a small thing, but it works. And I know that uh, I I was a touch typist and I let it uh, let it drag off and I same type of thing we were uh, you had to get to a certain level as a touch typist with all the keys blacked out so it was yeah yep. and uh, I was at uh, oh however old I was I'm thinking I never thought my life would come down to this the biggest pressure I had in the um, police academy was making sure I could touch type at 30 yeah. or 50 words a minute or whatever whatever yeah. it was. I even went to the extent of taking away a little manual typewriter on holidays so I could practice whilst I was away sitting in a tent. But, yeah. uh, Look, it's, it's, it's not just typing. Um, it's the skill set you get for dealing with stressful situations. You know, I work as a loss adjuster these days. Yeah. So I'll go to someone's property and they've lost their house. Um, so it's dealing with people who are stressed and under pressure. Um, it's knowing for when to push. You know, it might be um, might be in negotiations, and so yeah. you you just you can read people. That's uh, certainly a skill that if you're a, a good police officer, that's probably yeah. one of the most essential skills. Your communication. And I've never lost the radar. You'll understand what I mean about yeah. the radar. If you're walking down the street and you just can see what's going on, um, I still have that today. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm the same, and I, I would imagine that it just sticks with you. It's so inbred yeah. in you. You're looking out, and you're, uh, you're taking the environment in when you're, uh, when you're walking around. We'll take a break now, and then we'll hear about how Phil became a detective. Access a world of true crime podcasts on Crimex Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. 
It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. So what uh, to become a detective in New Zealand, I'm just genuinely curious, how long does it take from the time you uh, you start working to uh, getting you well, qualified? On joining the CIB, uh, it was two years. Right, okay. Uh, and in that time I had to sit various exams, you know, law practice and various bits and pieces. And then uh, the detective qualifying course that lasted it was about five or six weeks from memory. Yeah, went to the police college and uh, it was full on. It was I, full on. I think there's. Uh, I, I know we had uh, courses over here, homicide courses, when we had uh, New Zealand uh, police coming over, and uh, I've done some work over in New Zealand. And the similarities are, I think you could grab someone from New Zealand, drop them over here, teach them a little about the legislation, and uh, they'd hit yep. the ground running. Um, yeah, and that's what I, I feel like doing Actually, some work. I, I some guys from my wing, I, three of them ended up in the WA police. Right. Um, and another guy, I know he's ended up in, actually, I know of a couple who have been in the Queensland police. So, uh, yeah. I, I'd like to see it uh, open up a little bit more so your qualification carries you. Um, yeah. So I know Western Australia, because they were trying to attract uh, police when they had the, the mining boom and people leaving, leaving the uh, organisation. But uh, I, I would really like to have, whether it's you know, international or, or just on a national basis, to I'm a certified, qualified detective. Here's, here's what I've done, and it should be those skills should be transferable. And I think it would make all the organisations a little bit better by upskilling. I agree. And things like taking statements, you know, even though I'm no longer in the place, I know how to take some yeah. statements. And, you know, just on cold cases, you could get, Older guys just doing the groundwork for you. Oh, Phil, and we haven't discussed this, so it's yeah, un, uh, unprepared. I've been on about that and even right at the time when I was leaving, uh, leaving the police, which was uh, three years ago, I see all these retired detectives with a skill set that you just can't create overnight about how to interview uh, witnesses and get, uh, get the details that you need. And these blokes are, uh, yeah, they've left and they're looking for something to do. And wouldn't that be good mm. part-time? And I could be on an investigation and say, look, I need 10 statements done, brief what the investigation is about, and I know the quality that would come back. And for the life of me, I can't yep. see why we don't utilise those uh, those skills that are out there. Yeah, and I agree entirely. It's just, we're just certainly in New South Wales and uh, I think most of the jurisdictions here if you're ex you're ex and you've never been you don't get brought back into the fold again mm. and uh, it's just mm. such a waste of uh, knowledge and experience um all right let's uh let's start talking about uh, this case the one that you uh, you managed to get on and I'm still bitter about not working a case like this international <laughs> terrorism and uh, bombings fascinating case and uh, I remember uh, remember around the time with the French and the nuclear testing and, and Greenpeace how big it was and that was you know in the late 70s 80s and I think how would you describe Greenpeace what's for people that uh, don't fully appreciate what Greenpeace was about how would you describe that I didn't know them that well to be perfectly honest yep but 
I see them as being very brave. You know, um, I still give to Greenpeace today, actually, funny enough. And Interesting. Um, they purchased this ship called the Rainbow Warrior, and they were prepared to go to Murara Atoll and sit there in order to prevent the French letting off their bombs. Now, that would take a fair bit of courage to do, and good on them, good on them, because I think we're all disagreed with the way the French were going about um, setting off bombs down in our part of the world. You know, if they wanted to do it, why don't you do it in France, which they would never do, of course. And there were there was consequences from those tests. They weren't tests without uh, impact. They were, uh, yeah, impacting on the uh, island communities near where the blasts went, and absolutely uh, the, the cancer that flows on and the deformed babies. There were so many things that uh, yep. played out, from and it's there. still going on today. In yeah. terms of the consequences, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. It's passed on from generation Um, because they they start off with the – and people probably anti-whaling, anti-sealing, but uh, that uh, anti-nuclear testing. Um, So their plan, the Greenpeace plan, and this is where they're probably in conflict with uh, what the French were doing, was to put people on the island and uh, that might prevent – the test being done, but also to witness the test being done and put a spotlight on the, the testing. So there was a lot at stake from both sides, wasn't there? For sure. And, you know, the French complained about them and they never knew when Greenpeace was going to turn up so they couldn't program their, their blasts. I think it's also important to set the era. Yep. You know, it was the mid-'80s. New Zealand, under David Longy, had gone nuclear-free, so there were no more... American warships coming into harbour. That's right. There were no mobile phones, no internet, no computers. I saw a uh, word processor used for the first time in this particular inquiry in the Auckland Typing Pool. So it was a, di- a different different time. It was, completely. And I think the conflict between um, the, the Greenpeace and what they were doing and the stance that New Zealand were taking. I think there was a ship boarded before the uh, the Rainbow Warrior was uh, blown up that uh, where French commandos um, got on the ship and they, they actually were captured, photos of them uh, mistreating the uh, crew members. So there was that conflict. Oh, yeah, I recall that now. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, no, I was, I was reading about it on the, on the weekend and uh, it, it just sort of uh, reminded me. So... We've got 1985, and just to get a sense, because I want you to tell it through through your eyes, the, the story. You're working, where did you say? I was in Hamilton, which is about an hour and a half south of Auckland. And Hamilton was a city of about 100,000, but it's got a, surrounded by uh, dairy farms. Okay. And you were, you were working within the detectives as a generalist detective at that location? Uh, yes. I was, I used to do country south. So I used to do all the crime south and it was everything. Fraud, sex, incest, uh, anything that the uniform branch was a bit too complicated for them. That's when I'd that, be called that, in to do That was your, your yep. area of responsibility. So do you recall when the when the blast happened? Because it would have uh, would have made the news. Did you hear about it in the media first or did you get the phone call first? Yeah. No, no. I, I, it, was, it was all over the news. It was probably two days later that my phone rang at home. 
Uh, had you formed uh, had you formed any thoughts on what might have happened there? Was it obvious that it was a, uh, a deliberate uh, deliberate action? Uh, we all thought straight away the that it was a military type operation. Okay, which was confirmed pretty much straight away because the sequence of events. Yeah, the ship goes up or it's sunk with explosives. They weren't just small holes in the ship. You could stand in the hole. Yeah. So it was massive. That's a big blast, isn't it? It's a big blast. But then when the, let's call them the bombers. Yeah. They were frogmen. Um, they had a Zodiac inflatable and they were trying to get to a point where they could get it out of the water. This is after the blast. Yeah. yeah. And then I guess leave the country. In the process of them puttering around, they couldn't quite get to the place where they wanted to. Yeah. So they had to motor around a bit. When they were ready to go ashore, they actually threw the motor into the water. Yeah. So dropped it off the back of the inflatable. And a cyclist was going past and he heard the splash. So he looked. And that's how we knew where the motor right. was dumped. Okay. And we recovered this motor, which they had actually purchased in the UK. Then some yacht club people yeah. saw the inflatable being dragged out of the water. And now they thought they were out there doing burglaries. So one of them actually got in his car and and drove to the car park where they were putting this inflatable yeah. into yeah. the back of a Newman's van. And he wrote down the number. Okay, so there was for all the uh, all the planning, there was a few uh, few mistakes made there. If I just wind it back a little bit, where you get the call, you're on this yeah. on this job. Did you appreciate the magnitude of it at that time? Not particularly, no. So, is it a case of pack your bags and get down here, or would you uh, just be expecting to still be commuting down to the uh, location? Ah. Oh. No, it was pack your bags yep. and make sure you bring your passport. That right, was one thing right. I was so told the to early do. stages, so that's the first yeah. contact with you. So they, they yeah. already identified it was going to be uh, an international yeah. investigation. Yep. And we got the we got two of the offenders pretty much straight away. Yeah. Talk, talk us through that just before we do, because I, I think people will be interested how these crimes like this, a crime you know, planned by so-called people that should know how to get away with crimes, how it unraveled. So you get called down there, you have a strike force. We call it a strike force or a task force. What do you guys call it, an investigation team? What's your... Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Just, how... Yeah. <laughs> we used to call them the murder squad. Okay, that's a good name. That's cooler yeah. than task force. <laughs> um, what? How many people did that... Uh, that it's funny. I've been trying to think about the numbers. I've I've got a photo here somewhere of yeah. of the team, but um, look, it involves so many different uh, aspects of police work. Yeah, such as you'll have your fingerprint team, you'll have your photographers, and you know you might have half a half a dozen photographers working on on various locations on a job like yeah. this. Um. Auckland used to have the Wharf Police. Yep. So it was, hey, they used to run uh, police boats, same as they do in Sydney. Yeah. So they were involved. You know, we had a ship on, on the bottom of the uh, harbour. Only the bow was sticking out. So there was a close involvement with the Navy. Okay. Bring the... To get it refloated. 
Yep. Once it was up, it was towed to Devonport and put in dry dock, and that's when the full search of it began. So with the ship going down, that uh, people saw two bombs, one, the first bomb and then the second bomb, and then the ship sunk. Yep. When you were on the investigation, did you get down to the crime scene and see it? No. Okay, no. so it had been raised up or? No, no, that, that took weeks to get it up right. out of the water. Um, no, look, I was assigned pretty much straight away to suspects. Okay. Explain um, explain your role there. What's your, your role as part of a, a team? We already had two people in custody. Yep. So we were trying to tie them in with other people who were slowly coming to the surface in terms of the inquiry. Yeah. Um, my first job when I got into Auckland after briefing was to actually to interview some of the some of the crew of the Rainbow Warrior. Okay. And that was sort of general stuff. It's not as though we were going to get anything significant from them, but we had to interview them, so we did all that. Mm. But then we found out about the Newman's van was key to it all. And that was splashed all over the news media. So that was cir- circulated, we're looking for this van or? Yeah, well, we actually got it. Okay, yep. Uh, when they went to return the Newman's van uh, to the rental company, we were waiting there for them. Oh, right. Okay, that yes. would have been uh, fun Yeah. To grab them coming uh, back. And it was the, the people in the van were a couple who were pretending to be on their honeymoon and they're actually military people, obviously a woman and a, and a guy, they were in New Zealand on false passports. Yeah. And that was one of the first things they were charged with, Yep. Um, passport offences. How, if, if it was a state-sanctioned um, operation with their passports and that, the way the DGSE operate, how did you identify they were fake passports and did you understand the extent of what we're talking here? It's not just a couple of independent, disgruntled um, no, citizens. Look, and it, it, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I, I refreshed part of my memory uh, through a book that's been written, The Death of the Rainbow Warrior, and it's got actually the interviews recorded in there. Ah, right. Yep. I said, he said, that sort yep. of thing. And, um, and it was interesting because we clearly knew that they were French yeah, and that they were government. Okay. And at the same time, we had a sideline inquiry going into the yacht called the Uvia, which had already left New Zealand waters. It was crewed by four people, one of whom was a doctor specialising in uh, the bends. Yeah. He was a bit of a womaniser. He's a good-looking guy. The others were clearly military people. But anyway, they ended up in Whangarei Harbour, which is north of Auckland, and they brought in the Zodiac, the bombs, and the motors. Right. They had a meeting halfway between Auckland and Whangarei. Now, it's about a three-hour drive. Yeah. So they had a meeting in a forestry area with the Newman's van. How, how was that established? They were observed by a couple of forestry workers, and they could see the interaction between two vehicles. Yeah. And they thought it was so odd, they wrote down the registration number of the Holden Commodore station wagon in the dirt of their back window of the truck. Aren't they gold moments from a criminal (laughs) investigation point of view when someone does something like that? You go, yes, 
Yeah, That's and it was still there. Fantastic. So yeah. we then, you know, because the vehicle was hired, you tracked down whose name it was in, tracked it back to them back to the Uvia. Where's the Uvia? Right. And it turned up on Norfolk Island. Now, I imagine we had a um, an international call-out for that boat, yeah. for that yacht. It had been rented in Noumea. So they'd sell down from Noumea. And yeah. At short notice, I was asked, you got your passport? I said, yep. Okay, off to Fenuapai, which is the Air Force base out of Auckland. Yeah. And we jumped on an Andover with an Air Force crew. Now, we had a, a DSIR scientist, which is the same as the CSIRO here, I believe. Yeah, okay. A photographer, fingerprint guy, probably half a dozen detectives. So we flew to Norfolk Island and we'd landed there from memory. Uh, I think it was about 8 o'clock at night. We'll take another break now and then we'll talk about some more of the complexities of this case. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. So this is the crew that uh, had, you believe, had bought the uh, the, the boat in, the, the yep. rubber ducky boat. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then, oh, the inflatable boat. Then uh, the they've gone to Norfolk Island. Yeah. You've got the information that they're there. So the Air yeah. Force, New Zealand Air Force has got you over to Norfolk Island. Yes. Okay. So you're uh, just, and I, I'm, and this is the complexity of the investigation. All sounds so simple, but I know you're doing anything in, internationally, how complicated it is in, in policing in the, the investigations uh, I've done. You're now yeah. in Australian jurisdiction, so yeah. you would have all sorts of uh, issues, I would imagine. And it was interesting. Um, I didn't get too much involved in that. I was, we were briefed on the plane yeah. by the detective senior sergeant. My immediate concern was we were unarmed and I didn't want to go into uh, confront anyone with a military background uh, not being armed. And I think that's a reasonable concern there, Phil. You're, you're looking at people that are prepared to um, blow up a ship, that got yeah. the skills there. They're not. You wouldn't expect them to uh, yeah, not make a fight of it if they had an opportunity to get away. We were met by the local police and there were three Frenchmen there. So three of us were assigned one each. Yeah. And I was assigned a local policeman yep and they're actually staying in different rooms of the hotel that we that we went to and so we were given a key and i said to the local cop mate first through the door it can be you i don't mind but you need to be at the ready and he just handed me his gun and said it's all yours mate (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I shouldn't. I shouldn't laugh, but uh, fair call. Your yeah. investigation. You go through the door first. I'm not. That's <laughs> a good old Aussie policing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So okay. yeah, unlock the door, bang the light on, and I, I was at the ready, all right, yeah. and uh, woke this guy up, and then we went to the police station where the local police just left me there on my own with this guy and um, they went to bed. Okay. Can I just apologise here at this stage? That's probably not the normal re- response you would get from most people, but, I would think. But uh, nah, well, anyway. Hey. It is North Island. Yeah, well, that, that, right. we'll worry about it tomorrow. It Don't worry Sydney. about it now. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, so I had a painful night of trying to interview this guy, and he just claimed he didn't speak any English. Yeah. I think he probably did, but anyway, he just said he didn't. And, of course, I spoke next to no French, and uh, um, it was just just a long night. Bearing in mind that what what uh, what powers were you operating on there, Phil? Did you have a warrant um, for them, or what? No. What did you? So it was a bit no, of bluff. We had, we had nothing. Yeah, yeah. And it was interesting because they were held the following day, and so I worked all through the night, and we had a bit of a debrief because what we were trying to do was have we got enough to lock these guys up? Yeah. And we didn't. So we went on to the yacht uh, with the scientist, the DSIR yeah. scientist, Phil Groom, and he took samples from around the yacht. What was really interesting was we found maps of Auckland Harbour. Um, they had every receipt for everything they had for every dollar they'd spent in New Zealand. So they gave us this paper trail. Where I actually had a guest on here that was a former French spy, and we were talking about that very issue that you have to keep your uh, keep your accounts. It's not like James Bond; you've you've yeah. got to keep uh, your expenditure. Yeah, they want it to be reimbursed. Yeah, okay. Or account for the money that they've been given for the for the uh, for the operation. So we had pressure coming from the Australian government to either lock them up or release them. Okay, so this is, uh, and where you, you're a pawn in a lot of this, and I, I do understand it uh, when you're dealing with um, international issues. Australia's not trying to get France offside. The French would be putting the, the pressure on the Australians, going, "What what's going on there in your they're under yeah. your jurisdiction now?" And then New Zealand would have been pushing. I I don't know who sat atop a, a, a top of you and took all these. Uh, <laughs> they would have been pulled from pillar to post. I know there's a lot of communication between um, our head office and Lex Denby, who was essentially running the operation yeah. for us on Norfolk. And I know legally they were looking at what we could do. Yeah. What was the process? If we if we wanted to arrest them, what was the process? Because we had no power there. Yes. And um, where if we did, what would be the extradition process and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, so all of that was going on over to the side. You know, I was just busy trying to do my job as a detective. Anyway, we were told you have to release them by 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. We chose to ignore that. Yep. 
we kept on going, hoping we could get enough together. And it came... Your, your in, sorry, we'll get back to that, but your instinct for the with the bloke that you spent the night with uh, interviewing, your instinct was he was holding back on something and involved in it? Oh, absolutely. Okay. The thing I remember the most, he had hands like dinner plates and he was so strong. Right. Which, to me, I thought, you're a swimmer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That, that was the impression I had and I was... I was thinking, you know, a couple of times, I hope he doesn't turn on me because I'm not going to win this one. I'm here on my own. It's all right. You've got the Norfolk police backing you up. (laughs) (laughs) If they woke up, they would have been there with you. Yeah, they were in bed. Yeah. So. Okay. So you you said the the breakthrough. So you've got the ship there. So you've got the scientists there and and going through the ship with a fine-tooth comb, I would imagine. Yeah, we did. And things like... We took their, well, we photographed them, we fingerprinted them. And it was the first time I ever saw a fax machine in use. They actually had one on Norfolk. And we faxed through their prints to Auckland Central Post Office. (laughs) You know, I thought it was fascinating technology at the time because we had some prints, I think, on the Zodiac or something. Anyway, we had some prints from somewhere. To to match with their prints. Yeah, and we wanted to try and match them. They turned out to be negative. So all this stuff is going on. Uh, in the background, we also had uh, an imprint of a shoe. So we took their shoes. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing was when we, um, a guy called Nick Hall and myself, actually took these three guys back to the UVA that night and um, they searched their bags yeah. that we, we'd given back to them and they said, our shoes aren't here. Now, how did we know that? Nicole spoke French. And the the guy who was obviously in charge of them, he said, don't worry about it, let's get out of here. So we shook hands, said, see you later, boys. Yep. And within a short period of time, I keep on saying within 24 hours, we actually had enough to lock them up. Right, okay. Well, look, I, I think it we might just take a break here and when we come back, I, I want you just to um, explain what got it across the line, that you've got enough to lock them up. But yep. that's only part of it because, uh, yeah, if they're about to get on a ship and uh, they're in the international waters or in a different jurisdiction. So uh, I'd be fascinated to see what uh, what happens there. So if we can take a uh, short break and then okay. uh, then we'll get back into part two and we'll find out how this all, uh, all played out. Okay. 